Okay, chapter 14 is pharmacology and medication administration. So introduction, EMTs administer or assist in the administration of certain types of medications. And you must be completely familiar with the medication and the proper procedure for giving that. Giving medications can be serious business. The medications that we can give at the basic level, some of them can be very dangerous for a patient if we give it to them at, at improper times or if we give it to them improperly. So if we're going to have that responsibility of being able to administer medications to a patient, it's important for us to know just about all there is to know about those medications, indications, contraindications, mechanisms of action, why we're giving it, what's it going to do to the patient, who shouldn't receive the medication. Uh, and we need to know common side effects, predictable side effects that some of these medications are going to give as well. And medications are administered under medical direction, and it doesn't matter what type of medication that we are administering. We have to have protocols or standing orders or online medical control in some situations over the radio in order to give medications. It can be something as simple as aspirin or Tylenol, ibuprofen, something that we take on a daily basis that over-the-counter medication doesn't require a prescription. However, for us to give that as EMTs on an ambulance, we have to have medical direction in order to do so. <clears throat> So administering medications, some terminology, a drug or a medication, and those terms are used interchangeably, is a chemical that is used to treat or prevent a disease or a condition. And the study of drugs is known as pharmacology. And with EMT medications, the medications that we give to patients, those it's normal and common for these drugs to be carried on our EMS unit. And we're going to talk in here about there are certain medications according to the National Registry Scope of Practice that we assist the patient taking their own medications. However, in true practice, that's typically not how it works. We typically don't assist patients taking their own medications, especially in this region, but we give them uh, that medication out of our stock in the ambulance. So medications have specific effects on the body. We're giving this medication to try to accomplish something for the patient. When administered correctly, patient's condition may improve significantly. There's some medications that we can give at the basic level where we can have a patient that looks like they're about to die, almost code. We give them a medication and we can see an almost instantaneous turnaround in their patient's condition. However, if these medications are administered improperly, drugs can cause serious side effects. And again, there are certain drugs that are potentially pretty dangerous to patients. If we give them at the wrong time, we could potentially kill a patient. We can potentially give a patient a heart attack. So it is important that, again, we understand these drugs. EMTs only minister or assist with drugs listed in their protocols or with medical director approval. Again, if it's not written in our protocol book or we haven't talked to a doctor over the radio, we're not going to assist or give a patient a medication. So medications EMT administers are either carried on the EMS unit or, or prescribed 
to the patient. And again, it's going to be very dependent on our protocol state. Again, national registry standards are certain medications. The patient already has to have a pre-existing prescription, and we're giving the patient their own medication. We're just assisting them take their own medication. Again, in this area, especially in Texas in general, we don't typically assist with patient medications. We just give them the medication out of our truck, whether they have a prescription or not. It is important, though, if we are assisting with medications, we do, do not want the patient to get up, to ambulate, to exert themselves looking, walking through their house, trying to find their medication. We need to ask them where it is. We need to go get that medication. Certain conditions by, again, exerting themselves, that's increasing the work demand on the heart, we could actually worsen conditions. And again, this ultimately is going to fall to your local protocols, so make sure that you are familiar with these in your protocol. So common EMT administer medications, and for the purpose of the National Registry, for the purpose of tests in my class, if this drug is not listed on this following list, we're going to assume that we do not have orders to give it. So for testing, if it's not on this list, we cannot get it. It has to be on this list. The most common drug that we administer is oxygen. Other drugs, oral glucose, we give that for low blood sugar. Activated charcoal, we give that for certain poisonings and overdoses. And we'll talk about these individually. Aspirin for cardiac-related chest pain. Inhaled bronchodilators for bronchoconstriction. Asthma, COPD, allergic reactions. Nitroglycerin, we also give this drug for cardiac-related chest pain. Epinephrine at the basic level, the only thing we give epinephrine for is for a severe anaphylactic reaction. Naloxone and Narcan, or Narcan. And again, that is for an opiate overdose. There are, in this area, especially the, pro, the, the newer textbook that we aren't using yet, does refer to it a little bit, but things like uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, and ibuprofen, those are now starting to become more and more common at the basic level as well. UMCMS, they can get, you can give as a basic Tylenol and ibuprofen for fevers, very slight pain as well. So oxygen. Oxygen is a medical gas. It's indicated when you suspect hypoxia or hypoxemia. We are worried about low oxygen concentration in the blood or cells. We can give them supplemental O2. Patient complains of dyspnea, trouble breathing, or is in obvious respiratory distress. They have an increased work of breathing. They're having labored respirations, etc. Those are that's enough right there on its own, enough indication to go ahead and put the patient on oxygen. Patient has signs and symptoms of shock, poor perfusion. That's automatic. We don't care what the O2 sets are if the patient is showing symptoms of shock. They get placed on oxygen. And we'll talk more about shock in the next chapter. Or for medical patients, any other times where the O2 set is less than 94%, again, that's our goal for medical is at or above 94%. There are some precautions that we need to follow when we're, when we're using or deciding whether the patient needs oxygen or not. 
High concentrations of oxygen have been found to reduce systemic coronary artery blood flow. And remember, it's the coronary arteries that feed the heart. So too much oxygen, we get too much oxygen in the body, get their O2 sats above 100%. At that point now, our coronary arteries are going to start constricting, going smaller, meaning we are reducing the amount of blood flow to the heart. So this is especially true if the patient's already suffering from a suspected cardiac illness like a heart attack. The last thing we want to do in a heart attack is starve the, the heart of even more oxygenated blood flow. High concentrations of oxygen has also found to increase tissue damaging free radical production as well. And this is especially true for things like strokes. Those free radicals can cause damage to freshly reperfused tissues, etc. So strokes is another one of those conditions, along with heart attacks or suspected acute coronary syndrome, where we do not want the SATs ever to be at 100%. 94 to 99, but not above 99. Oxygen administration differences in medical versus traumas. Again, for medical conditions, the O2 sat go is 94% or indications of inadequate breathing or respiratory distress, dyspnea, some of those other items that we've talked about. For trauma conditions, we up that by a percentage point. So for traumas, the O2 sat goals are 95% or both. And we're not so much worried about over-oxygenation and traumas like we are medicals. Key points. Again, don't get solely wrapped up in that SpO2 sat, the O2 sat readings that you fail to treat your patient. Again, there's certain conditions where we don't care about O2 sats, they're still going to get placed on supplemental O2. So signs symptoms of inadequate breathing, respiratory distress, Indications of shock, pregnant patients over the 20th week gestation with an even remotely serious complaint, uh, any inhaled poisoning, for examples. We don't care about O2 sats in those patients, they get high flow O2, or at least supplemental. Cardiac and stroke victims, this is key. We want the O2 sats between 94 and 99%, but not 100%. So we use the appropriate device to achieve this setting. Again, for most of the time, for most medicals, we tend to go with a nasal cannula at first. Again, oftentimes it's going to be a judgment call, though. If I have somebody that's having pretty significant respiratory distress and their O2 sets are 80%, I'm probably not going with a nasal cannula in that case. I'm probably going to go straight to a non-root breather. For trauma, though, we typically just go straight to a non-root breather because, again, we're not so much worried about over-oxygenating traumas. Another drug that we give and carry is oral glucose. So oral glucose, all it is is sugar. It's just a tube full of sugar. So our brain cells re require uninterrupted supply of glucose. If we have a diabetic where their blood sugar is starting to drop, we start depriving that brain of glucose, the brain's going to start malfunctioning and it's going to manifest as altered LOC, confusion, combativeness as well. So oral glucose is just pure sugar, pure glucose that we're trying to get into the patient to make sure the brain has plenty of glucose. Oral glucose may be administered to diabetics with low blood glucose level. The patient has a problem, they have low blood sugar, we're going to give them sugar to try to increase it. Comes in the form of a gel placed between the patient's cheeks 
and gums. And we're going to put that actually in between the cheek and gums. It's going to absorb faster that way. So it's going to work faster. And this is important for anything that we're giving orally or that we're putting in the patient's mouth. The patient has to be conscious enough and able to control his or her airway. So somebody that's completely unresponsive, we're not going to put a medication in their mouth because they're high likelihood they're going to choke or aspirate on it. So in order for us to give oral glucose, the patient has to be conscious and alert enough with it in order to actually, we feel comfortable letting them swallow anything that gets placed in their mouth. And we'll talk further about oral glucose once we get into the diabetic chapter. But that's what oral glucose comes in. Typically comes in the tube like that. The dosage, the typical dosage, single dose of oral glucose is a full tube, which is 15 grams of oral glucose. Every medication is going to have an expiration date on it as well. So we have to be able to find that expiration date. Most of the time in these type of containers, it's going to be written right here, which is oftentimes very, very difficult for us to see. Activated charcoal. Activated charcoal is a fine black powder. It's a suspension, so it's mixed together with some other items. And it may be administered in some cases of injected poisonings to absorb the poison and prevent it, prevent its absorption into the body. So patient takes a bunch of pills or takes something that can be potentially toxic to them. Well, if we get there in time, we may be able to give them this activated charcoal. They swallow this activated charcoal, that medication or that poison that they swallowed is now going to bind to that activated charcoal, and that activated charcoal is going to prevent that toxin from getting absorbed into the small intestine, getting into the blood, bloodstream. Problems with activated charcoal, one big problem is it's very difficult for the patient to drink. It's like a charcoal briquette, basically, that we're asking a patient to swallow. This oftentimes works better than any other medication to induce the patient to vomit because it's disgusting. And I've done it as a student many a times, have scraped and wiped up activated charcoal off a hospital floor because the patient was trying to take it and threw, up, threw it up everywhere. Another problem with activated charcoal is it's very time sensitive. If we wait too long, it's not going to be effective. And oftentimes, if there's like an antidote for the medication, we're not going to give activated charcoal. So we're going to discuss it further in toxicological emergency, but typically as a standard for activated charcoal, we do not give activated charcoal unless we have online orders to do it. So actually physically getting on the radio, getting on the phone, talking to the physician and getting orders. Again, in this region, especially UMCMS doesn't even carry activated charcoal anymore because we never give it. But in this region, SPIMS, you do not give activated charcoal unless you have online medical control to do so. And that's what activated charcoal looks like. 50 grams is the typical adult dose, which is, again, the entire tube. Aspirin. It's administered to patients with chest discomfort or pain related to a lack of oxygen supplied to the heart. So we're going to give this for suspected cardiac-related chest pain. And when we give aspirin, most of us think about aspirin. Most of us that have taken aspirin take aspirin as like a headache relief or some type of pain relief. That is not why we give aspirin 
to chest pain patients. It's not given for pain, but aspirin is a platelet function inhibitor. So it's to prevent the complete blockage of a coronary artery by preventing those platelets from sticking, making that occlusion, that obstruction larger. So again, we give aspirin because it's a platelet function inhibitor. We're not giving it to try to get rid of the patient's pain. And we'll discuss this on Wednesday in cardiovascular emergencies. Aspirin bottle. There's two typical uh, forms that it comes in dosage-wise. There's either 81 milligram tablets. In that case, the patient tends to take four, which is 324 milligrams, or we have 325 milligram pills. So uh, it's either 324 or 325, depending on what you carry. Aspirin is given orally, so it's by mouth. So again, same kind of rules about activated, uh, about oral glucose, activated charcoal is going to be the same. They have to be able to swallow. Not only that, chewable aspirin is always going to be better because it is going to work faster. And our, our protocols, UMC-EMS's protocols, even if it's not a chewable tablet, if it's just a 325 milligram tablet that patients typically swallow, we're still going to have the patient chew that aspirin again to try to get it into their body quicker. Inhaled bronchodilators. They're going to cause dilation of the bronchioles to allow better passage of air. So if the, the, well, they're having bronchoconstriction and those bronchioles are tightening and tightening up, we give them a bronchodilator, hopefully going to relax those smooth muscles surrounding the bronchioles, causing them to get larger, which in turn is going to allow more air to flow into them. How we give inhaled bronchodilators is typically we give it in two forms, two ways. It's either through a meter dose inhaler. Not very common in the EMS setting. We typically don't use rescue inhalers in the back of a truck. Our kind of go-to method that we tend to use more frequently are going to be small volume nebulizers or SVNs. So with, but with meter dose inhaler, this is, again, typically we only use meter dose inhalers if the patient is prescribed and we're just assisting with their inhaler. And again, in this region, we typically don't do that. So it's prescribed to patients with chronic respiratory disease. Again, MDIs are typically not carried by EMS. And for us, we typically give a uh, bronchodilator, the top that we give are beta-2 agonists, which is affecting the beta-2, which is bronchodilation, designed to dilate the bronchioles. Some common examples are things like albuterol and zopinex. Albuterol is by far the most common beta-2 agonist that EMS services carry. And we will, again, we'll discuss this one on Wednesday as well in the respiratory. But some examples of meter dose inhalers. We have the actual inhaler right here. And this one is a spacer or a chamber, a holding chamber. Uh, we typically use these for pediatrics. For most adults, we, they don't need the spacers. Again, what is more frequent in EMS to give uh, bronchodilators is going to be small volume nebulizers, also known as handheld nebulizers or HHNs. Patients may be prescribed breathing treatments that they take at home as well if they have chronic respiratory problems. 
And again, in the state of Texas, most EMS services carry their own beta-2 agonist bronchodilator, so we don't have to rely on the patient having a prescription for it. We can still give it if, if they meet certain criteria. Drugs include, again, albuterol is going to be the most common, Zopinex, Atrovent, also or more commonly referred to as Duoneb. Duoneb has albuterol in it. It also has ipotropium bromide in it as well. And in this region, UMC-EMS and the entire SPIMS region, which is basically every EMS service outside of Lubbock County for miles and miles around here, the, the breathing treatment that we carry is Duoneb. And again, that's albuterol and apotropium. And in order for a nebulizer to work, it's going to require some type of airflow. So it's either a machine that's kind of compressing room air, causing it to nebulize the medication, or for us, we're going to hook it up to an oxygen tank and use the flow from the oxygen to nebulize the medication. This is inhaled. They're inhaling the medication. And again, we'll talk about this on Wednesday in respiratory. So there's an example of a small volume nebulizer. Here's it. It's just set up in two separate ways. So this is a handheld nebulizer where the patient has to sit there and actually hold the nebulizer. This one and our non-rebreathers that we carry, we can actually take this apart, use this chamber, remove the bag off our non-rebreather and shove that up the non-rebreather. And now it's a hand-free version where we just put the mask on the patient and tell them to breathe deep. Moving on, nitroglycerin. This is used by cardiac patients. Oftentimes, if aspirin's indicated, nitroglycerin is going to be indicated as well. We give it for suspected or potential heart attacks. What nitroglycerin does, it dilates blood vessels to reduce the workload of the heart and to allow increased blood flow to the heart muscle. So it's a vasodilator is what nitroglycerin is. So if a patient's having a heart attack, there's a blockage or an obstruction in a coronary artery of the heart. So very little blood or no blood is able to get past that obstruction in that coronary artery. So by giving them nitroglycerin, we're dilating those blood vessels, hopefully allowing more blood to get to that area of the heart to prevent that permanent damage that of lack of oxygenation is going to cause to the heart. However, it's not pinpointing just one or two blood vessels. It's dilating almost every blood vessel in the body. And if you dilate blood vessels, we've talked about this previously, your blood pressure is going to drop. So hypotension, dropping of the blood pressure, is a major side effect of nitroglycerin. So because we know that's a pretty common side effect, we want to make sure that their blood pressure is good before we give them nitro. So typically, their blood pressure has to be above 90 systolic before we can even give nitro. If it's below 90, we're not giving them the drug. Another thing about nitro that makes it pretty unique is we cannot give a patient nitro if they have taken any erectile dysfunction medications within the last 48 hours. And the reason being is it's going to have a synergistic reaction. So it's going to cause the blood pressure to totally tank on our patients. So interesting fact, Viagra initially, when they were when they discovered Viagra, they were actually trying to come up with an alternative to nitro. It's a nitrate. 
So they were trying to, again, find a better drug than nitro for chest pain, cardiac chest pain patients. When they were doing studies on it, they found that Viagra had a very, uh, a very specific side effect, uh, especially in male patients, that they realized that they could probably that's probably more profitable than it is for cardiac related patients. So Viagra treating erectile dysfunction again that was kind of discovered by accident. So again, if they take it and it doesn't have to be Viagra, it's any of the ED medications. If they've taken it within the last forty eight hours. We cannot give them nitro because, again, what's going to happen is we're going to totally tank and drop their blood pressure. We'll discuss this in cardiovascular emergencies as well. Are you uh, saying? Go ahead, uh, somebody. Uh, so anytime you're giving like nitro, are you using aspirin in, conduct in conjunction with it, right? Vast majority of the time, yes. If we're okay. giving patient nitro, they're probably going to need aspirin as well. And again, there's going to be contraindications to either one of the drugs. So certain situations we might not. But again, yes, typically they have the same indication. Patient complaining of chest pain that we think is cardiac or has a potential of being cardiac in nature. So nitro typically comes in two types of forms. It either comes in a liquid spray or a tablet. Nitroglycerin, and we'll talk more about it. This is the drug is given sublingually meaning we spray it or place the pill underneath their tongue. Epinephrine. It's used to treat severe allergic reactions or anaphylactic reactions. Epinephrine is a very potent, potentially very dangerous drug. So we don't give epi for a simple allergic reaction. It has to be a true life-threatening anaphylactic reaction. And Everything that occurs during an anaphylactic reaction, epinephrine is going to reverse. So blood vessels dilate. That causes a falling blood pressure. Bronchoconstriction, your, bro blood, uh, your bronchioles get really, really small. You also get, when your blood vessels dilate, you get what's referred to as increased capillary permeability, where actually fluid is leaking out of the capillaries because there's no pressure behind it. So you actually get a loss of volume as well. And again, epinephrine is going to reverse all of that. Uh, through the sympathetic nervous system. Again, adrenaline, epinephrine, your body naturally secretes it. We're just boosting that level pretty significantly in our patients. And how we give it typically at the basic level is we give it through an auto inject. So patients that have had a history of anaphylactic reactions in the past, now we can give them, they may be prescribed an EpiPen and we can, by national registry, assist with the administration of an EpiPen. And we'll discuss this further in the anaphylactic <clears throat> emergency section. So there's an example of what a auto EpiPen auto injector looks like. There are several different manufacturers of EpiPens now on the market. These are EpiPens, probably the most well-known brand anyway. Uh, these are the older models of the EpiPens. We have the newer models of the EpiPen trainers in our classroom for practice. Naloxone, or com more commonly referred to as Narcan. I'm sure everybody in here has heard of Narcan. It's used to treat known or suspected opiate overdoses, and Narcan will only work on opiates. So some examples of opiates include morphine, heroin, fentanyl, oxycodone, 
so forth. Anything prescription pain medication that's a really good pain medication that's controlled is probably going to be an opiate. So the good medications, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So naloxone is a competitive opiate antagonist that competes for the same receptors binding sites of the opiate drug. So what Narcan does is it's basically it is binding to the opiate receptor sites of the cells tissues and is preventing the actual drug from binding there instead. So it's not really flushing it out of the body. This is preventing it from being used by the body. And Narcan is one of those drugs you can have a patient that's completely unresponsive, barely breathing two to three times per minute. We push Narcan and we can have an instantaneous turnaround. They're up talking to us as soon as we get done pushing. So it suddenly reverses respiratory depression, hypotension, sedative effects created by the opiate overdose. Narcan now, I believe, I know there's been pushes for it, I think it is, you can buy this over-the-counter now uh, without a prescription. There's vending machines in New York that sell or give away Narcan through a vending machine, all trying to prevent opiate-related deaths. For us, how we give it is intranasally up the nose. How we, we don't, we typically as EMS providers, now some services, it, it probably is being used but we don't have the little single dose ones already set up. We have to actually attach what we refer to as a MAD device to the end of an actual syringe in order to give Narcan. And the MAD device is a mucosal atomizer device that turns a liquid into very small droplets that can be absorbed through the nasal uh, mucosal membranes. Narcan can also be given by injections. It can be given intramuscular subcutaneous. They do make auto-injectors, and the advanced paramedic level, our preferred route to give Narcan is going to be through an IV. It's a safe drug. There's no real side effects. If the patient hasn't taken opiates, Narcan's not going to do anything to them. So again, there's a lot of benefit to it. It can reverse opiate overdoses, and there's not real, there's not dramatic side effects. Again, if we're wrong and accidentally give it, we're probably not going to hurt the patient. The only thing that we really do have to be worried about with Narcan is if we have somebody that's truly opiate dependent, and I'm not only talking about illegal opiates, but I'm talking about your grandma or grandpa who's a cancer patient that's on high doses of opiates constantly. If we slam Narcan into them, we're going to put them in forward withdrawals, and it's going to make them extremely uncomfortable, has a possibility of causing things like seizures as well. So we do got to be a little cautious for chronic opiate users. Another downside to Narcan, it's very short acting. We refer to that as a short half-life. So we give it and we have a long transport time that Narcan can actually wear off. Patient was snoring, barely breathing, almost dead. We give Narcan, wake them up. Five, 10 minutes later, they're right back to snoring, barely breathing. So we may have to repeat the dose multiple times throughout transport. And we should consult protocols for dosaging and routes. This region's for basic, it's two milligrams of Narcan intranasally. And this is what that Narcan and MAD device is going to look like. So we have a typical syringe right here, and there's a vial of Narcan. If that's the case, if that's what our service carries, we would have to draw up the medication from the vial into the syringe and then attach that MAD device to it to give it. 
Narcan, typically how we carry it in this region, comes in a pre-filled syringe. It's, it's separated. This bottom part and this top part are separated. All we do is flip the, the tops, screw it together, put the MAD device on top, and we're ready to go ahead and give it. <clears throat> so again, those are the most common drugs, and by the National Registry scope of practice, the only drugs that we're really able to give at the basic level. So things like antihypertensive medications, we don't give them to patients, and we don't assist a patient taking their own antihypertensive medication. So when we're talking about medications, there's some things that we need to know. One of them is the names. And drugs can have multiple different names all referring to the same drug. So there are different categories of names for medications. One of them is the chemical name. This is the chemical name of a drug describes the chemical structure of the drug. We typically don't use that very frequently. We also have the generic name. Now, we do use generic names of drugs pretty frequently. These reflects the chemical characteristics, but in a shorter form than the full chemical name. So acetaminophen, ibuprofen, those are all generic names. We also have the trade name or the brand name. This is the name the manufacturer assigns. So acetaminophen, for example, that is the generic name. The most common trade name for acetaminophen is Tylenol. So again, the generic name is acetaminophen. The trade name is Tylenol. So if you buy the knockoff generic brand of acetaminophen, it may be the Equate Pain Reliever or the Equate Fever Reducer. Again, that's the trade name. So the generic name typically describes exactly what the drug is. It's and that's typically a lot of the medications we refer to, we do it by the generic name, not the trade name. And the official name is, it's as the drug is listed with the official U.S. pharmacopoeia and is always going to be followed by the initials USP or NF. And we don't use that very frequently at all. Again, for us, it's either the generic or the trade name that we use for medications. So example, we'll use nitroglycerin as an example. So the chemical name is 1,2,3-propentyrial trinitrate. The generic name, nitroglycerin tabs. The official name, nitroglycerin tablets, USP, because again, anything with USP at the end of it is going to be the official name. And the trade name can be nitrostat. All of these may be the exact same thing. The top three may be the same, and there may be five different people that sell the same drug just with different trade names. So again, a lot of times to avoid confusion, we just use that generic name right there. So common examples, oxygen, we're not, not worried about that. Nobody refers to oxygen as a trade name. Or glucose, a trade name for oral glucose can be glucose, instaglucose, activated charcoal is the generic, superchar, instachar, actidose, liquichar, again, nitroglycerin that we've talked about. Epinephrine, we have adrenaline, epipens, AVQ, auto injectors. Again, there are several different manufacturers now that make epis, epi uh, auto injectors. Albuterol is a generic name, probenol, venolin, proair, acuneb, bospire. Leva albuterol is actually the generic name 
Again, in this case, we typically refer to it by its trade name or as OpenX. Same thing with Duoneb, that is a trade name. The generic name is the, just the name of the two medications, hypertrophy and bromide and albuterol. Aspirin is a generic. Naloxone is the generic. Narcan is the trade name in that case. And again, for medications, there's no point of buying name brand medications like for Tylenol or ibuprofen or acetaminophen. They are the exact same drug. They have to be the same drug, same ingredient, same everything. So for generic, and for me, especially, I'm always going to buy the generic version because they're typically cheaper than the trade. And again, it's the exact same drug. So routes of administration, how we give that medication. The route is how the medication is given to or taken by the patient. And depending on the route, the route is going to play a role in determining how fast that medication is actually going to start working by the body. And each medication that we give to a patient is prepared in a form that allows for the quickest and safest absorption into the body. We have to know how these medications, the routes that these medications were designed for, making sure that we're giving it the correct way. And protocols and medical direction will dictate the routes allowed. So common EMT routes. And we'll talk about these individually as well. We can give some medications sublingually. Sublingually means under the tongue. They're not swallowing it, but it's absorbing or dissolving underneath the tongue. Orally, by mouth, having the patient swallow the medication. Inhalation or breathing in the medication. Intramuscular injection, where we're injecting the medicine into the muscles and letting the muscles absorb it. Intranasally, through the nose. Sometimes your protocols may also allow you to give certain medications subcutaneously, which is with a needle injection, but it's into the fat layer. So again, a common route that we give medications at the basic level is sublingually. Medication is placed beneath the patient's tongue where it dissolves and is absorbed. If we're giving the medication sublingually, the most common drug we give sublingually at the basic level, about the only one, is gonna be nitro. So we tell the patient, do not swallow the medication, either the spray or the tablet, don't, don't swallow it, let it sit under your tongue and absorb into your body. Again, we are still putting the medication in a patient's mouth, so the patient does have to be alert and able to protect their own airway before we can give them nitro. And again, nitro uh, tablets or nitro spray is what we typically give it, uh, use for sublingual. The oral route. Drug is swallowed for absorption through the gastrointestinal tract. Drugs that we give through the oral route is uh, aspirin or glucose activated charcoal. Activated charcoal is considered to be given orally. However, it, again, the goal with activated charcoal is not to be absorbed. It's to prevent other medications from being absorbed. Again, since we're giving them the drug by mouth, patient does have to be able to swallow, protect their own airway, it has to be alert. And again, 
aspirin, oral glucose, and activated charcoal. So the abbreviation for sublingual, if we're giving it sublingually, we just do a capital S, capital L. That's how we abbreviate drug was given sublingual. Oral, how we abbreviate oral is PO, per, per oral, oral or by mouth. Inhalation, used for gases, aerosols. Medication is inhaled into the lungs for absorption. Oxygen is the most common drug we give. Uh, those that are given are bronchodilators through a meter dose inhaler or through a nebulizer. Those are, again, inhaled medications. Intramuscular, abbreviated IM. These are injected into a muscle mass for absorption. Well, if it's an injection, it is going to require a needle. And it's obviously for poking somebody with a needle, it's going to cause some discomfort to the patients. For adults, typically not that big of a deal. However, if we are having to give a kiddo an injection, that's automatically going to increase anxiety and cause them to be upset. And the most common drug that basics give uh, intramuscularly is going to be epinephrine. We do that through an auto-injector. Intranasal, medication is sprayed into one or both nostrils through a mucosal atomizer device or a MAD device. And that MAD device creates a fine spray of drug particles at a very specific size that stick to the mucosal lining and absorb through the mucosal membrane. So we're squirting it up their nose, but it's never working its way into the lungs. It's turning it into a very fine mist, and it's actually absorbing in that lining of the nose and back down, that mucosal lining. And you have to have the MAD device in order for to give a drug intranasally. You can't just take the Narcan without a MAD device on it and squirt it up the patient's nose. It's not going to work. You have to attach the MAD device. And that's what that MAD device looks like. So when we depress the plunger on our syringe, again, it kind of makes it very, very fine, turns it into a mist. What, again, that can be absorbed into the patient's nose. Subcutaneous injections can be abbreviated SQ or SC. Medications injected under the skin into the subcutaneous or fat layer. It produces a slower absorption rate than intramuscular. It's going to take longer for it to work, but at the same note, since it absorbs slower, you can kind of extend the length of how long it's going to be effective. We don't do it in this area, but there are some areas that where you will give Narcan initially to a patient, intranasally, so forth, and then you may follow it right back up behind it with an intramuscular injection of Narcan to prolong that desired effect. In this region, we don't give any medication subcutaneously. So we talked about routes. We also have different types of forms that medications are gonna come in as well. The form usually limits the administration to one specific route. Again, aspirin, for example, comes in a tablet. Because it's in a tablet or a pill, 
we have to give it by mouth. There's, we can't crush it up and then inject it into a patient, et cetera. So again, the route is often dictated by the form that the medication comes in. Form also determines the effect of the drug and the speed of its action. Some drugs have local effects, while others have systemic effects. Local effects means it's only going to work that area where we're applying or doing the medication at. Systemic effects means it's working throughout the body. Common forms of medication include compressed powders or tablets. A compressed powder or tablet is a that is shaped into a small disc or elongated shape. Nitroglycerin and aspirin are very common tablets that we carry. Also have liquids for injections. Liquid substance that has no particulate matter means there's nothing floating in it. It's very, very fine liquid. Epinephrine that we give through our auto-injectors and Narcan are all liquids that can be injected. Now, Narcan is given intranasally, but it's the same form for both routes. That, sorry. So again, these are tablets. All this is is powder that has been compressed together very tightly to form that tablet. These are epinephrine ampules. This is a liquid for injection. In this case, it comes in an ampule. So if this is what your service carries, you're going to have to draw that medication out of that glass amp. Gels are viscous, meaning thick and sticky substance that the patient swallows. But the only gel that we carry is going to be oral glucose. We also carry suspensions. These are drug particles that are mixed in a suitable liquid. However, with suspensions, they do not remain mixed. If they set for long periods of time, those different uh, particles, the medium or the liquid is going to become separated. So before we give a suspension, we have to mix it together. Activated charcoal is an example of this. Things like liquid Motrin, liquid uh, acetaminophen, et cetera, those typically are suspensions. We got to shake it before we give it to a patient. So gel or glucose, the suspension, activated charcoal. And again, if we have to, if we're giving activated charcoal, we have to mix it up and shake it before we can give activated charcoal. Fine powders for inhalation. These are crystalline solid mixture mixed with liquids to form a suspension for inhalation. And these only come in meter dose inhalers. For nebulized medications, they come in nebules or small volume nebulizers used as a compressed gas to mix liquid with a, uh, a liquid medication and forms an aerosol to be inhaled by the patient through a mouthpiece or mask. So again, if we're giving them a breathing treatment, albuterol, Zopinex, Duoneb is through a small volume nebulizer. So again, meter dose inhaler inside the canister. It's a fine powder for inhalation. And these, again, are through that small volume nebulizer. Gas is a medication in a gaseous form. Oxygen, again, is the most common drug that we give. They also make sprays, 
Spray droplets can be administered under the tongue, contains a propellant to create a spray. Nitroglycerin is about the only spray drug that we carry. And again, oxygen is gas, compressed gas, or comes in the cylinder. And then I spray an example of nitro. So essential medication information. Again, if we're taking that responsibility to give a medication, we must understand the following pieces of information. We need to know what are the indications for that drug, meaning when should we give that drug? We'll talk about these individually as well. The contraindications. When do we not need to give this medication to a patient? The dose, how much of the medication we need to give, how to properly administer it, the route, proper techniques. We need to know the actions. We need to know by us giving this patient this drug, what is this drug going to do to the patient's body? And we need to know predictable, common side effects for these medications as well. Again, for example, nitro, a common side effect is it's going to drop your blood pressure. So again, breaking them down individually, we have indications. It's the most common use of the drug in treating a specific condition. It's geared towards the relief of signs, symptoms, or a specific condition. So in other words, the indication is when should we give this drug? Example, aspirin. The indication to give a patient aspirin is the patient is complaining of suspected cardiac chest pain. That's the indication. Contraindications are situations in which the drug should not be administered because of the harm that it could cause to the patient. So maybe related to history, age, blood pressure, etc. And again, a perfect example of a contraindication. The indication for nitro is just like aspirin. An indication for nitro is we're going to give it to patients with suspected cardiac-related chest pain. A contraindication is. We're not going to give it to a patient if their blood pressure is below 90 systolic. So if I'm complaining of chest pain and my blood pressure is 84 systolic, my low blood pressure is a contraindication, meaning we're not going to give the patient nitro. And for every single drug out there, the patient is allergic to the medication. An allergy to the medication is always a contraindication. So if the patient says they're allergic to aspirin, we're not giving them aspirin. They say they're allergic to duoneb. We're not going to give them the duoneb. That's a contraindication. The dose. It's the amount of the drug that is given to the patient. In many instances, the adult dose and the pediatric dose can be different. So we may have to memorize two different doses. And dosing is important because if we overdose, give them too much of a medication, we can cause serious side effects or do harm. And if we underdose them, too little of a dose may be ineffective. It may not do what we need it to do. With dosage, dosage is, most cases, dosage is expressed in weight or milligrams. So when we talk about dosage, and if I'm talking about uh, 15 grams, Again, that's a weight-based. It's the weight of the actual medication in the, the form. 
So, and we'll talk about the common doses, dosages, but dosage is expressed in weight. It becomes confusing or a little bit confusing when we talk about giving 25 grams of D50. When D50 comes in, that's probably not the best example. Uh, if we're talking about giving four milligrams of Zofran to a patient, when Zofran comes in four milligrams and two cc's. So the dosage is not the two cc's, the dosage is the four milligrams. So when you go up, that, that differentiation is going to be a lot more important. Administration, we need to know the route, how we give the medication. We need to understand that different routes are going to affect the speed of action. Again, giving medication by mouth orally tends to have a very slow onset uh, speed. It's going to take a while for it to get absorbed and to start being effective. And again, the routes we've already previously talked about. We also need to know about drug actions. The effect the drug has on the body. So we need to know about the therapeutic effect. It's the intended positive response by the body. And the mechanism of action is how the drug works to create its effect on the body. So an example, the actions of nitro include relaxation of blood vessels and decreasing the workload of the heart. So for example, let me use another example of a breathing treatment. Breathing treatment, the therapeutic effect is going to be dilation of the bronchioles. The mechanism of action or how it causes the dilation of the bronchioles is the beta-2 agonist. It's going to affect the beta-2. In turn, beta-2 causes blood, or, uh, uh, the lungs, the bronchioles, sorry, to dilate. Need no side effects, actions that are not desired and that occur in addition to the desired therapeutic effect. So these are actions that are happening that we really don't want to happen or not intending for it to happen. So side effects can be predictable or maybe very unpredictable. So common predictable side effects are again, blood pressure or nitro, I'm sorry, is lowering blood pressure. Another very common side effect for nitro is it's going to give your patient a headache as well. So some key steps to remember when administering medications. We have to have orders in order to give the medication. It's either from standing orders or protocols or getting on the radio and talking to the patient or the, sorry, the physician. Make sure that when we are grabbing the medication that we select the proper medication. Many drug containers look extremely similar, and the only difference is the, the name that's in very small writing on it. So check and recheck your medications to make sure that you grab the correct one out of your uh, drug box, wherever you keep your medications at. We, if we are assisting a patient taking their prescribed medications, we need to make sure that it is actually prescribed to the patient. We can't give or assist a patient taking somebody else's medication. So we need to make sure that it is truly prescribed to the patient themselves. When we give drugs, we always have to check the expiration date of the medication as well. And if the drug is expired, it doesn't matter if it's one day expired 
or 10 years expired, we do not administer expired medication. We also want to check for any discolorizations or impurities of the medication as well, especially the liquid medications. We should know what the normal color of that medication is. And if it looks discolored, don't use the medication. Or if we notice anything floating in the medication, do not use the medication, throw it out. We're going to verify the form, the route, and the dose that we're giving, again, by referencing protocols. Then we want to check the five rights of medication administration, and we'll talk, uh, list those out individually. But with every medication, we check the five rights. And we need to document every time we give a medication as well, things that we have to know. We need to know what time we gave the medication. We need to document the dosage that we gave, any changes in the patient's condition, any side effects that occurred. And we always repeat vital signs after medication administration as well. So the five rights, medication administration, we have to assume it's the right patient. That if, again, if we're assisting a patient with their own medication that it's prescribed to the patient, for us, we have to make sure that this patient does actually need this medication. So it is, this patient is right, meaning it has the right indications to give it. For nurses at the hospitals that are juggling four or five patients at the same time, that's also meaning verifying patient's name with the order to ensure that we are giving it to this bed instead of we accidentally getting our patients mixed up and it should have gone to another one of our patients. We need to make sure we're giving the right medication. Again, many of the containers that these drugs come in, especially this is going to be, again, especially more true at the advanced and paramedic level when we are giving IV medications because those ampules all look basically the same. And it's always good to double check, right? Medication, I draw up a medication. I have, I'm going to have my partner give this medication. I'm going to give him the, the syringe and the drug container as well. And we're both reading that drug container to make sure that we're not screwing up and accidentally drawing up the wrong drug. Make sure we're giving it the right route, oral, sublingual, inhalation, etc. The right dose. Check the dosing with standing orders or online medical direction. Not so much for us at the basic level, but if we do have a very complicated drug dosing, use a chart or a cheat sheet to help you out. For us, our drugs are pretty much straightforward. Once you get to the advanced paramedics, some of your drugs are going to be weight-based. How much we give is based on their weight. Once we start talking about IV drips, medicated drips, now we're talking about we're going to give this patient nitro or uh, uh, dopamine at five micrograms per kilogram per minute. That can get extremely confusing and having to do pretty long math in the back of the moving truck in a critical situation. So if it is a complicated dosing, use a chart. And the right date and time, we want to make sure that the drug is not expired, that it's in date. And it's also meaning that for like repeated doses, certain drugs we can repeat. We're waiting that norm, that allowed time before we repeat it. And we're documenting these times we give our medications as well. So reassessment following the administration. Must reassess the patient after medication administration. Things we need to reassess them for looking for any changes in their mental status, their airways, their breathing, pulse, changes to their skin, 
and blood pressure. After we give them medication, we're going to repeat bottle signs and we're going to ask them questions to determine, hey, are that medication make you feel different, bad? Are you having any side effects? Is, if we gave the medication, say, for pain, is the medication helping your pain? Get a full set of bottle signs, SPO2s, changes in complaints, relief of signs and symptoms. If we note our patient complains of any side effects, and again, just any overall changes in the patient's condition. So sources of medication information, this is not so much talking about the drugs that we give to our patients, but if we run on a patient that has five or six or even more prescription medications at home, and we want to know what they take this certain medication for, there is some resources out there that we can use to look up these drugs to determine why the patient's taking it. American Hospital Formulary, Formulary Service, AMA Drug Reference, PDR, the Physician's Desk Reference, which is a book that's normally about this damn big that you can see in hospitals and at doctor's offices. Package inserts, if they still have the inserts that are given to them at the pharmacy. Poison control centers have a bunch of useful information about certain medications as well, especially if we suspect an overdose. They do make EMS pocket drug reference guides that are designed to fit into your pocket pants that typically has a list of the most commonly prescribed medications to patients. Again, why it's prescribed to them may even list common side effects to those medications as well. Hippocrates, it is a online app. It's free. You do have to sign up for it though, and you do get endless numbers of emails through it. But it is a very useful resources resource and other medical director approved websites as well. Again, just Google in a pinch. If you Google a medication, lisinopril indication, it's going to tell you most commonly used or most commonly reasons why it's prescribed as well. Key points, again, always inquire about history. We need to make sure that we're talking to the patients, getting their medical history, making sure that the patient doesn't have any contraindications before we go ahead and give this drug. We always ask about drug allergies before we give a medication, and it does not matter what medication it is. Before we give them a drug, we're gonna ask about allergies. Or we typically wanna ask it in two separate ways. During our sample, we're going to ask, are you allergic to any medications? That's kind of an overall generic answer for overarching. Patient says, no, I'm not allergic to anything. So we continue on with our assessment. Now it's time to give the patient aspirin. We're going to specifically ask, I need to give you aspirin for your chest pain. Are you allergic to aspirin? No. Then we can give them the aspirin. Same thing's true when we get to nitro. I need to give you nitro now. You're not allergic to nitro, are you? No. Now we can give it. So we ask. Overall, what you're allergic to, and we tend to want to ask specifically per the drug we're going to get. If we ever get in a situation, well, it's not really addressed in the protocols, but I'm kind of worried that this may be a contraindicated in this type of patient, just get on the radio and contact medical control and ask them what they want us to do. So pregnant patients, you don't want to mess up and give a drug to a patient that's pregnant if the patient can't have that drug because now it may cause birth defects or problems with the fetus. Specific history, drug interactions, dosaging, or any other questions or uncertainties. 
And again, I, I normally cover this one in that first day, but since I wasn't here, if we ever get in a situation where like, what the hell do I do next? I'm not sure what the best course of action is to do. Use that resource, contact med control, ask their opinion. Again, that's kind of taking some of that burden off of you, making them make that decision. It's also kind of covering your own ass too. If they tell us to do something that ends up being harmful for the patient. It's on them at this point. So in summary, medication administration is a considerable responsibility, can be potentially pretty dangerous. Remember, the only drugs that we can give are the ones we've talked about for testing purposes, and we have to have medical direction in order to do so. You must know the indications, contraindications, uh, dosage, administration route, forms, actions, and side effects. You need to know just about everything there is to know before we give that drug. And always utilize the five rights of medication administration as well. Or clinicals, especially once you're on the ambulance. Those uh, UMCMS is normally pretty good about letting you all give medications if it's in your scope. With that being said, they're going to quiz you before they allow you to give that medication. They're going to want to know, okay, if we want to give this patient nitro, tell me what the indications are, the dosage is, contraindications, and so forth. And if you can't answer those questions to their satisfaction, they're probably not going to let you give that medication. So that's something you need to be prepared for. They're probably going to quiz you. If, they, if you don't know your drugs, they're not going to let you give the medication. Again, it is important that we understand these drugs. All right, any questions over 